Welcome to the BizTimes MKE podcast and our weekly debrief. I'm BizTimes Associate Editor Arthur Thomas, and I am joined on this week's episode by my colleague Lauren Anderson and also an Associate Editor here at BizTimes. Lauren, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well, thanks. And also joining us, BizTimes Editor Andrew Weiland. Andrew, how's it going? Busy, busy. It is always busy, it seems, especially now. We're past Thanksgiving. We'll dive in here in a minute to our insider spotlight stories and actually two big stories this week. But before we do that, I want to highlight our upcoming event. It's on December 10th. It is our Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum. Uh, if you're familiar, if you attended at Biz Expo, our Bravo IQ Awards ever, uh, this will be a very similar event, uh, although we think even better. Uh, we've got John Hammes receiving our Lifetime Achievement Award, Dan Cat from Good City Brewing uh, receiving a Regional Spirit Award for Entrepreneurship, and then uh, several other award recipients sharing their insights on how they've done it, and a panel discussion uh, featuring executives from Front Desk, uh, Excelity, and Parts Badger, all sharing insights on how they're growing uh, their fast-growing companies. So it should be a great program. That's December 10th in the morning. If you want more information, uh, go to biztimes.com and click on the events tab. Also, before we get going, I uh, want to thank our insider subscribers. Uh, insiders help make what we do possible. Uh, if you're not already an insider, it's really easy. Biztimes.com, click on the subscribe button, uh, the equivalent of $8 a month, and you get access to all of our stories, discount tickets for events, and more. So uh, let's highlight some of those stories that are available only to Biz Times Insiders. One of them was the cover story on our latest issue. It was one that Lauren did. Uh, if you've read Biz Times for a while, you'll know that Lauren takes on these deep, meaty subjects and does a great job uh, distilling them down into to understandable stories. So, Lauren, you wrote about challenges in the mental healthcare space. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, thank, well, thanks for saying that. Um, I this was kind of a big story, and um, it, it actually was kind of started close to home for me. I have a lot of friends and family members who are in the healthcare and uh, social services and social work spaces. And I've been talking with them uh, a few months back about what they were seeing in, in their workplaces and it's just not enough staff to handle the massive uh, demand for mental health services for kids in the Milwaukee area. And so uh, as I started kind of poking around, I, I realized that there's probably a bigger story there. And I think the, the data that this story highlights bears that out. Basically, what the region is seeing is uh, demand for mental health and behavioral health services uh, among children has really skyrocketed in recent years. And the pandemic has only exacerbated that situation. And at the same time, there just aren't enough workers to meet that need. So what that looks like is at places like Rogers, which does inpatient care for people in pretty serious mental health crises. They have been expanding their facilities in recent years, but um, they have to like leave rooms unoccupied by people who could potentially be getting care there um, because there just aren't enough nurses and psychs and different different roles. There just aren't enough people to to, um, meet that need. It's also happening in Central City mental health and behavioral health clinics, um, it's kind of cuts across geography and demographics. And Children's Wisconsin actually told me that they've seen an 80% increase in referrals for mental health services 
between December 2020 to uh, a year earlier. So kind of shows just how much the pandemic and other forces have really spiked need. Yeah. I mean, we hear so much about worker challenges and not to discount, you know, what a worker shortage means for a manufacturer or a food service company or things like that. But when we're talking about, you know, mental health and mental health specifically for kids, you know, it really kind of hits home or really hits hard that uh, this worker shortage, the lack of people. Um, And there are some efforts to, you know, invest more money in this space, but, you know, you need the money and you need the the humans to to do the work, kind of a multi-pronged thing. Right. I mean, this is an issue that has long-term consequences. It has immediate consequences for the kids who are going through stressful and traumatic experiences. And then it has long-term implications once uh, if, if they grow up with uh, these mental health challenges that go unaddressed. We, we, there's a growing body of research that shows that that you know, affects their productivity as, as uh, workers and um, their you know, quality of life as, as just human beings. So uh, it's, it's, it'll be somewhat concerning to think about how this projects out long-term. Mm-hmm. Turning now to my insider spotlight story, uh, not quite as heavy of a topic. We got a SEC filing by Harley Davidson this week that kind of disclosed some information about their CEO and his compensation, his pay, Jochen Zeitz. Um, he is going to be taking a $600,000 cut to his uh, annual salary. And it's not really an issue of the company not performing or anything like that. They've actually um, seems like they're pretty happy about where he's positioned the company and Harley's kind of been recovering over the last year, two years, but the, their shareholders kind of wanted, you know, less base pay and more of a, an incentive structure. Uh, they also wanted to make sure he sticks around through this entire five-year plan they've laid out. So they structured some options for him where he only can, you know, um, exercise those options if he's with the company through the end of 2024 and the stock price climbs to a high enough level. So it's just interesting to kind of dig, dig a little deeper on that. You know, Harley's always an interesting company to follow, important company for our region. And he's been kind of repositioning the company, trying to get it back on track after taking over just kind of as the pandemic was getting going. So check that story out. Uh, and then Andrew, what uh, what's your insider spotlight for this week? Well, coming out of the MMAC's biennial all-member meeting, there were remarks given by the new CEO of Potawatomi Hotel and Casino, who just sort of blurted out that they were working on a $150 million investment, is what he called it, in Milwaukee. And it was apparent that He's planning a major upgrade to Potawatomi Hotel and Casino. $150 million would just be an enormous project over there. Didn't provide details. We scrambled around to try to get some more information about it. And there wasn't much else that they wanted to say. But we uh, we were nevertheless feeling it was interesting to report the fact that this that he was putting this idea out there and you know, you start to dig deeper and you re- remember that, okay, Potawatomi not too long ago bought a site adjacent to the casino that was formerly used by the Cargill Meatpacking Company. And that could be involved in some kind of project. Um, if you watch, if you look, look back at the history of Potawatomi, you know, it's been there in the Menominee Valley for 30 years, started off as a humble bingo hall and has every few years 
they do a major upgrade and they've expanded it over time into a, a, a colossal facility. It is now, I mean, it's like a Las Vegas level casino with a massive hotel dining and uh, entertainment. You know, there, you know, there's an entertainment venue there for shows and, and meetings and events. So um, it's really evolved from that humble bingo, bingo hall. So you wonder what's next. Uh, they're not saying, but it's going to be very interesting to see what a $150 million investment is going to look like over there. Yeah, that will be interesting to, you know, see what, you know, $150 million can go a long way. Um, and you have the uh, the emergence of, of, you know, sports betting has kind of become the, come to the scene as well. You know, the Oneida um, casino up in Green Bay, I think just started with that, had reached an agreement with the state to be able to do it. Um, and it's become such a, you know, a big thing in other states. Um, it's hard to wonder if maybe maybe that's part of it. Maybe who knows, but $150 million goes a long way. Yeah. You would think, uh, you know, uh, that certainly could be. And, and in fact, um, the Potawatomi CEO mentioned that, you know, made, made reference to sports uh, wagering, but you would think a $150 million project would be much more than that. Um, the other thing he referenced that was interesting was the fact that there's new competition coming that, you know, there's, Casinos in various stages of development in Rockford, Beloit, and Waukegan, Illinois. Um, I think the Rockford one's under construction, and they just opened a, a temporary location. That's a hard rock casino. Beloit's, uh, I think, construction, Ho-Chunk's starting construction soon there. There's a project in the works in Waukegan as well. So Potawatomi is seeing um, new competition in the region. I mean, it, it draws from well outside of the Milwaukee area. So those locations are on their radar and they feel like they need to step up their game. So we'll see what they come up with. And Lauren, you had talked with uh, the new CEO over at Potawatomi a few months back um, and he kind of, he didn't have the $150 million element, but he mentioned some of the possibilities for, for future growth there. Yeah, he didn't offer too many specifics when we spoke either, but Um, I think the quote was that he's progressive about experiential type of entertainment and that zone is uh, around the property is open for full discussion. So, and talked about it, building upon it as a premier destination report, uh, a resort and uh, the developments they're going to do there are going to lift some eyebrows and draw the right kind of attention to the city. So again, kind of, kind of vague, but potentially exciting things happening <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to keep following it and, and see what what comes of it uh turning yeah. to it's the dollar figure it's the dollar figure that's so intriguing that suggests something bold is being planned so yeah stay tuned. definitely uh turning to a big story for the week um actually coming from the mmac all member meeting that was on tuesday lauren they updated their region of choice work and you've been reporting on this a lot over the last you know, two plus years. Um, the region of choice is initiative is an effort among companies that are members of MMAC to close the gap between the folks they have in their management who are white and those who are black or Hispanic Latino. Um, they've set targets. They've done a lot of surveying that haven't done research. They've done a lot of work. On that front, there's a pledge companies sign. Uh, so we get an update this week. What did we hear about where all those efforts are at and how far they still have to go? Yeah, so about two years in now, uh, they compared 
where they're at now compared to 2018 baseline data and things are on track in short, the uh, African-American and Hispanic slash Latino employment in the region or among participating companies rose just about 6% since 2018, which if you project that out outward, um, that means they're on track to meet their goal of um, 15% of uh, their 15% target by 2025. Same goes, um, they're even a little ahead of, of their target for when it comes to management employment, um, which rose among minority managers by 23% um, since 2018. So um, they're also on track to meet their target um, by 2025. So that that's all on track. Again, those are initial numbers. So um, you have to wonder... Will they be able to keep up the momentum for the next few years and um, see those types of gains um, until 2025? Could it potentially grow even higher because, or could it accelerate because you know it gives more pe- more time to to meet those goals? Uh, you just can't really know. But so far, so good. The thing that caught people's attention at the meeting was um, MMAC also surveyed managers across the the region about their um they asked them two main questions that of interest which were would you recommend your company as a place to work and would you recommend metro milwaukee as a place to live and the results from that were really interesting there was uh, definitely a big disparity between how white managers responded to that question and how Hispanic managers and and black managers in the region responded on the question of whether they'd recommend their company as a place to work. They used a net promoter score and pretty much across the board, people responded positively about whether they would recommend their place, their, their company as a place to work. It was definitely much higher among people, among white managers versus managers of color. Um, The more, uh, you could see a pretty big gap um, on the second question of would you rec- recommend Metro Milwaukee as a place to live on um, that net promoter score, white managers uh, gave it a, a 23 rating, which was in kind of positive territory um, that compared to African-American managers who rated, gave it a rating of negative 37 uh, and anything in negative territory is, as you can imagine, concerning. Um, so, in short, a really big gap between managers of color versus white managers and their perception of the region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you do a great job in the story of kind of walking through all the math of this. So I encourage folks to check that out. Uh, we'll link to it um, to kind of get into the details a little bit more. But there's the, the bottom line is there are big gaps here between how folks in different groups feel about their companies and the region. Andrew, we've been reporting a lot on this. We've made it a point of emphasis to cover region of choice and diversity and inclusion in issues generally. Uh, what did you think when you saw the results from this the, the survey? Well, alarming yet unfortunately not surprising when we consider what's, what we watch going on in our community every day. And I think we're well aware of the severe disparities that remain in the Milwaukee area, you know, particularly with significant problems with racial segregation and inequality and uh, the structural structural racism, you know, uh, it, it, it is, but it is probably Milwaukee's biggest problem. And uh, 
I give the MAC a lot of credit for tackling the issue. And, you know, the chamber certainly has a role to be a cheerleader for the region, to promote the region as a great place to do business, to advocate for local businesses, for public policy that is favorable to a a healthy business environment. But the MAC also does a good job of evaluating the strengths and weaknesses of the region, promoting those strengths, but not shying away and, and really putting in all their members' faces, here are our problems. And it's frankly not the most comfortable conversation to have, but it brings it to everyone's attention that if we don't address the situation with you know racial inequality in the Milwaukee area, not only is it obviously just a massive human problem, it's an economic problem as well. It's a problem that you know you won't be able to attract the talent that you need and you won't be able to grow the region. And when you consider the region's dismal population growth and, and sluggish economic growth, a lot of it is tied to these issues. So it's incumbent upon everyone to try to figure out how to be part of the solution. And the answers aren't, aren't easy, but it's something that the entire region needs to pull together and work on. And so I give MMAC a lot of credit for putting it out there, taking some leadership on the issue and uh, just trying to to move the needle on it. Yeah, I think they had surveyed when they when they started on this effort, it was because their member companies told them that yeah. the racial divide in Metro Milwaukee was among the top issues facing their businesses, facing the region. Um, so they're responding to their members and trying to tackle it. You know, I mean, you're not going to solve it overnight, um, but doing something is better than doing nothing, certainly. And it's, I mean, it's interesting because there's only, as a, as a chamber, there's only so much that's within their purview. Um, obviously, they can reach uh, companies and, and business leaders, but that larger question of would you recommend Milwaukee as a place to live, that touches everything. And so, you know, companies can influence their own company culture and having a culture of inclusion and, and belonging for all of their employees. But, um, you know, Corey Joe Biddle, who's a, a VP at MMAC, she said, you can't change the way it feels as uh, African-American residents, when it, how it feels when you walk around a suburb and you don't feel like you belong there. So the, the reaches of this initiative and how far reaching MMAC can, can be with the Region of Choice Initiative, it's, there are limits there. And as, as you were saying, Andrew, it, it requires a coordinated effort across all sectors. Let's turn now to another uh, really interesting story from the week. Um, and this one uh, hits um, close to home for, for biz times. It, it affects our, the neighborhood we're located in, we're in the third ward, our offices and kind of down on the southern end of the third ward, where it can be a little quieter. Um, it's not quite as busy as up by the public market, but that might be changing a little bit. Madison-based Frank Productions announced plans for a music venue near just south of the Summerfest uh, Administrative Building. Uh, Lauren, you wrote about this one. What, what can you tell us about it? So it looks like we are uh, potentially getting a new indoor concert venue hall. Um, it, it would have two venues within it. One, um, the, the plans call for one having a capacity of 800 and the other would have a capacity of 4,000. 
It's planned for a site just south of the Summerfest administration building, which is right across the street from the grounds. Um, And it's east of Erie and Jackson streets. So like you said, Arthur, kind of a a sleepier end of the third ward. I mean, this is an area that's, there's a lot of parking lot and in that part of the third ward. So I think there's a lot of people excited like that there'd be something coming down there that could kind of, activate the area, bring people, all of those things. Andrew, uh, this has got a, certainly has a real estate component, which uh, we know is right in your wheelhouse. What do you think of, of this possibility? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting piece of news uh, for a number of fronts. As you say, the third ward, um, <clears throat> you look at the western half of it, it's pretty densely developed. You get to that eastern half of it, especially around Summerfest and the Italian Community Center, there's a lot of vast acreage of, you know, vacancy, you know, just sur- surface parking lots predominantly. And, and it's just, you know, it's, it's nice to have the parking for the festivals. But when festivals aren't going on, particularly Summerfest, it's really a waste of prime real estate. And it's, it's, it's a shame. And the Italian Community Center is, you know, starting to make moves to try to attract some development to some of its land. You had the um, the ballet put a facility in, but that just took a small small piece. There's still a lot of land available for something else. Um, so this is going to be interesting. But I think the even greater issue is going to be how this shakes up the music, the the live music scene in Milwaukee. Um, the addition of a okay an indoor facility with basically two venues, one eight hundred seats, one four thousand. <laughs> it's going to be just fascinating to see what that. As first of all, you know, with Frank Productions behind it, I think they have the ability to bring in hopefully some some acts that normally aren't coming to Milwaukee that we're missing. So it'd be great if they can bring in more more performers and more shows. But what will it? what impact will it have on existing venues in Milwaukee? And I think particular, you look at the rave, you look at uh, the Paps theater, the Riverside theater, and even smaller places like uh, Shank hall. I mean, an 800 seat venue competes with a place like Shank hall. So um, older venues that maybe haven't been upgraded in a long time could have a hard time competing with a brand new venue um with frank productions behind it right down by the Summerfest grounds so you could see existing venues really struggling to compete with that and it could hurt their business significantly or it could just mean that we're getting more artists into the city to perform at all these places these the venues may have to make their own improvements to to remain competitive so it'll be very interesting to see the impact it has on milwaukee's live music scene yeah, does it grow the pie or does it, you know, take part of the only the available consumer dollar that uh Yeah, does it cannibalize? Does it cannibalize or does it grow the pie? We'll have to wait and see. With that, we'll wrap up this week on the Biz Times MKE podcast. As always, Andrew and Lauren, thanks for joining me. You bet. This is Dan Meyer with Biz Times Media. You've been listening to the Biz Times MKE podcast. For more business news and insights, be sure to go to biztimes.com and subscribe to any of our daily e-newsletters and our magazine, BizTimes Milwaukee.